Good morning, church. How is everybody? Listen, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to take it and open with me to Mark chapter 3. And uh, we're going to camp out there for a little bit this morning, Mark chapter 3. While you're turning there, uh, I just want to go ahead and dive real deep for a second while you're finding there this morning. I want to talk with you just a second about the kind of heart that I see becoming so prevalent in our, in our Bible Belt culture. Now, if you don't know what the Bible Belt is, we live in it. The Bible Belt, if you go and look at a map of the United States, they call the Bible Belt everything from North Carolina. It sweeps down just like a belt and goes all the way over to Texas, right? They call that the Bible Belt. Why? Because we, it's almost like we became our own little section or country over the past uh, uh, 50 or 60 years. As, as America secularized a little bit, we just kind of held on to what we always have believed in what we always have said, right, which is the Bible, right? So they call us the Bible Belt. And I want to talk with you just a second about something I see happening in the Bible Belt, but, uh, and it's all going to tie in in just a second as I come back to Scripture. But I want to talk to you all about the kind, of, uh, the kind of heart that I see becoming prevalent in the Bible Belt. But the Bible Belt is a place, it's a culture that's produced a sense where, go, where being a Christian is the norm. Okay, it means that it's normal to be a Christian, to be anything other than that, in a sense, is outside the norm. It's alien. So we live in a place where going to church is normal and expected. We believe that it is right to believe in God. We believe that it is right to go to church and say the blessing. And all those are good things, right? I'm not saying those are bad things. But I want to tell you about the side effect that I see happening around our culture. The side effect of that is that we have reduced what it means to be a Christian down to mere association with Christ instead of what it actually is, which is a life of surrender to Christ. You see how those two things are different? One is we go to church, we say our blessing, we're associated with Christ because we're supposed to be, all right? The other is, no, a Christian is actually somebody who lays their life down and says, Jesus, here's my life, you can have all of it. The kind of heart that that's producing as I read the Bible, it's the kind of heart of Judas. Everybody remember Judas? We all know that Judas was a disciple, right? You go find uh, Judas and uh, you go look at the list of disciples in the four Gospels and Judas is going to be listed right there among the 12, right? He was strongly associated with Christ. He may have even considered Christ a friend. Probably did probably thought, you know, me and Jesus, we're tight. However, Judas was not a Christian, and his life was not fully surrendered to Christ. In fact, we all know that when push came to shove, Judas was all too willing to sell out Christ when a better opportunity presented itself. The heart of Judas that I'm, that I'm seeing, the heart of Judas that's become so prevalent, is the heart that wants to be associated to Christ, but not surrendered to Christ. The heart of Judas is one that wants to have the benefits of following Christ, but not the sacrifice of obedience to Jesus. Does that make sense? We want the benefits. We don't want to go to hell. We want to have our best life now or whatever they say. But hey, when if it comes to the sacrifice of actually doing what Jesus says, that's another thing entirely. The heart of Judas wants to be saved from hell but it does not give up the self-centered lifestyle that it loves. After all, what did Judas sell Jesus out for? 30 pieces of silver for who? Was Judas, was Judas intending to go out and, and split that 30 pieces of silver up among the rest of the disciples? No, it was for him, right? 
Sadly, I see the heart of Judas in so many of our lives and in our culture and in this church every week. I see the heart of Judas because there are so many of you, and including myself at times, I, I told somebody this morning, when I preach, I'm preaching to myself, number one. I see that heart so often because we want association with Christ and we want the benefits of Christ. And if we're honest, that's why we come to church every Sunday morning because we know we want some kind of relationship with Jesus. We need to get up and go to church because that's what Christians do and we're Christians. And hey, let's be honest, I don't want to go to hell. I would rather, I always love that opportunity, that witnessing track, right? You go up to somebody and say, do you want to go to hell? Obvious answer, no, right? We want the benefits of Jesus. That's why we get up and come. But in all honesty, we're quite willing to sell Jesus out when better things come up, when certain sins that we love come up. And I just want to be flat out honest with you. I know we're just diving in deep here this morning, right? Like we didn't even just wade out in a little bit. We just straight to the deep end, right? Wherever you are not 100% sold out to Christ is where, you're, is where you are willing to sell Christ out, Okay? Where you are not 100% laying your life out and saying, Jesus, this is yours, is where you're willing to sell Christ out. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of that. For some of you, it's finances, right? And so we come here every week and we talk about tithe and we talk about how important it is to be generous and to not let money have a hold of your heart, right? But for some of you, it's finances. You do not tithe because you do not trust that God is sufficient to provide your every need. So what do you do? You sell out Christ because you would rather do it your way. Anybody ever remember the old Frank Sinatra song? I did it my way. What's he say? When I stand at the gates, I'll look at him and say, I did it my way, right? It's a great song, but there's going to be a lot of people in hell singing, I did it my way. Because we know what God says, we know what's right, and we'll say, I do it my way. For others of you, it's your relationships. Let me clarify what I mean by that a little bit. You know Christ says that premarital sex and living together outside of marriage is wrong, right? That's, we know that's what the Bible says. But we would rather do things our way, and so we sell out Christ like Judas, and we say, I'll do it my way. And the sad thing is, there are going to be a lot of people in hell who are good people who were people who me and you love, but who said, I did it my way. And now some of you are just like, you didn't even read scripture yet. Like, I know I'm gonna read the Bible in just a second, but y'all were like, y'all were looking at me funny. And I'm, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. So like, don't try to slash my tires on the way out, okay? But I believe, and my wife tells me this all the time. She says, the biggest thing that kills pastors is that they don't make the point. So I just wanna be direct with you this morning. I wanna be effective. I wanna be direct. If your heart is the heart of Judas, if your life is marked by association with Christ but not surrender to Christ, if all you want are the benefits of Christ but you do not love Christ himself, God help you, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. And I, you can keep coming to this church every Sunday and we can keep loving you and I do love you and I hope you keep coming back but God help you, if, I, if all you want is association and not surrender, you're not a Christian. That is as clear as I can possibly make it. And I just want you to see today as we start this thing out. It doesn't matter if you said the sinner's prayer. 
It does not matter if you swam in the baptismal pool. It does not matter if you've been going to church for 50 years. If you do not have a heart that loves and obeys Jesus Christ, you have not met Jesus Christ and you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter where you live or where you go to church. Now, I know that's heavy as we're starting off all this. It's just like, where is this coming from, right? And I know that you're kind of wondering, man, Dallas is being mean. But i got to be honest with you. As I prepared this week, uh, as I prepared and looked at Scripture, God just laid my heart open. And I'm going to talk to you about that just a little bit. But as we, as we read Mark chapter 3, what we're going to do is we're going to see uh, three different kinds of hearts, okay? We're going to see three different characters' hearts laid open, right? That's going to be their hearts on display. And so as we start that, I've been thinking about the kind of hearts that come into this church every week, the kind of heart that I have to fight against. And for some of us here, probably even most of us here, the kind of heart that we have is the heart of Judas, okay? And so what I'm praying for is that God does a supernatural work while I preach this word and that the Holy Spirit comes on you and takes your heart that is like Judas and changes it into a heart that is like Jesus. And I say that's supernatural because let me tell you something. I can preach the best message ever today. Probably won't, but I could. And if you do not meet Jesus, it will not matter. Jesus has got to do it. And if you ever read through the Gospels, this is kind of a a, a side note here. If you ever read through the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus is not so much concerned with a person's actions as he is concerned with a person's heart. Why? Because Jesus knows what is in the heart will come out in the life. So we're going to get started here. We're going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I want to tell you where I'm going for this so you can see everything I'm about to lay out in front of you. We're about to see three different kinds of hearts, okay? The first kind of heart we're going to see this morning, we're going to see a person's heart who is hard and religious, okay? So we're going to see what it looks like when a person has a hard, religious heart. The second kind of heart we're going to see is a humble heart. Then the last kind of heart we're going to see, we're going to see what Jesus' heart looks like. We're going to see our Savior's heart, all right? So that's where we're going this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, verses, starting in verse 1. It says this. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. There it says they watched Jesus. They are the Pharisees, right? Y'all have heard Jeremy over the past couple weeks talk about these group called the Pharisees. We're going to talk about them a little bit more. If you'll notice, though, in verse 1, it said again. So what I want you to see is this thing with the Pharisees Jesus is fighting is an ongoing thing, right? Jesus isn't content to let the Pharisees win. Verse 3, it says this. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful? He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. 
The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's go to the Lord in the word of prayer. God, Lord, this morning, God, I'm just praying and pleading, dear Father, that you would just sit me down and shut me up. God, I am nothing but a man, God. And Lord, if I don't want to get in your way, God, I just pray that the words you have just been putting on my heart this week would come out, Father God. Because, dear Lord, I know that the reality is, is dear God, I am the worst sinner in this room, God. I do not pretend to be anything but that, God. I know, Father God, that there are sins in my life, God, that I'm just like Judas. I'm willing to sell you out for, dear God. I'm willing to betray you, God. So, Lord, I just humble myself before you this morning. God, I'm nothing. And God, I just pray that you would forgive me of where I fall short, Lord. And God, I just know that this morning, God, Holy Spirit, you have to come if somebody's going to be changed, Father God. It's a supernatural work if somebody's saved, Father. So I just pray this morning that whoever's here who needs your heart, who needs your uh, spirit within them, who needs your salvation, dear God, I pray that they would be receptive and open. Holy Spirit, please do a great work among us today, God. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so let's dive right in here. Everybody shake your head like this. Everybody do like this. Okay, I just want to make sure y'all's pulse was still going a few minutes. Might have to do like that. All right, so let's dive right in here. The first kind of heart I told you guys we were going to see this morning in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 is this, a hard and religious heart. So I challenge you. Let me, let's do a little survey here. Who, how many people in this room have been going to church for their whole life? Like, just ever since you can remember, you've been going to church, right? All right? So, like, 75% of us, all right? That's what I thought. How many of y'all have been going to church on and off your whole life? All right? That's about the other, uh, another 10%. How many of y'all have been going to church since we started the, in the past year? You've been coming a good bit since past year, all right? So that's 100% of y'all. That's what I wanted, what I wanted y'all to get out, all right? So check this out. As, I, as we go through the, uh, the story of this, uh, of this hard and religious heart, I want to challenge you, especially if you've been coming to this church for the past year, I want to challenge you. Ask yourself as we're talking about this person. Don't just hear me describe him. Ask yourself, does this describe me, all right? Put yourself in the story and let's read it, all right? So the first person is the hard person with the hard religious heart, and this person is symbolized by the Pharisees. They were the church folk of the day, okay? Jeremy's told y'all that over the past couple weeks. They, these were the church people. And it cannot be overstated, guys, that these were good people, all right? Sometimes we read about the Pharisees in the Bible, and we give them a bad rap because they're like, man, these guys wanted to kill Jesus, and you can't be a good person if you wanted to kill Jesus. No, these was the good folks, all right? If, if they were to be here today, all, all of us would be like, man, they got it going on. They got their, We would all look and be like, man, they have their life together. They've got two kids and a minivan, and their dog was house broke the first day it came home, right? Like, these people have just got it going on. And like, we would look at them and think, man, they're awesome. But what I want you to see is that even though they were good people on the outside, on the inside, their hearts were hard. I want you to see a couple things about them, all right? The first thing I want you to see about them is this. If you're a note taker, I want you to see that the religious people, the hard religious heart is a heart that's lazy. It's a heart that's lazy. And let, me, let me just show you what I mean. Let's read verse two. If you can put verse two for me, Russ. It says this. And they watched Jesus. 
So if you remember how this story started, this, they, these people came into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the, the synagogue, I don't know what you know about the, the first century Judaism, but this is the place where they come to worship. It would literally be like them coming to their church on Sunday morning, right? They came in, and this was the place where they were coming to, to get their praise on, right, to get their worship up. And so Jesus comes in, and Jesus is coming into the synagogue looking for someone to show the love of God, right? Jesus was always on a mission. Jesus never did anything just out of, out of the random, right? He was always on mission. He comes in, and he's looking to show someone the love of God. Now, Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is coming there with a purpose. I'm going to find somebody today, and I'm going to save somebody today. Now, what were the religious people doing, though? They were watching so check, check out this contrast. Jesus is working. They're watching. Jesus has come with a mission. They're focused on Jesus, right? Here's what I want you to understand. Religious people watch while God's people work, okay? There's a difference between somebody who's religious and comes to church and somebody who is saved and who does the work of God. I want you to see that this morning. It's important. Religious people don't want to be involved in the work of God. They want to watch the work of God happen. They're lazy. And you might, you might have been coming to church for this past year, and like you don't feel lazy, right? But when it comes to the things of God, you are. You don't want to do the work of God. You want to watch somebody else do it. You just want to be there when something awesome happens so you can tell all you people at work, man, God's really moving in our church. He is just moving and saving folk. I'm just glad to be a part of it. You're not a part of it. You're watching it happen, right? I, I watched Super Bowl 51. I was not a part of Super Bowl 51. There's a practical side for all of us here right now. Some of you have been coming to this church for the past year. Listen, and I hope if you've been coming for the past year and you hadn't gotten involved yet, I hope you'll come for another year if you don't get involved this year. But listen, some of you have been coming for the past year and you've never gotten involved in the mission of God that we're doing here. Because listen, I, I, we love having church on Sunday morning, but what, so this is much bigger than a service on Sunday morning. We're out to see Jenkins County be saved for the gospel. We're out to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth in this community and make a difference. And so some of you have been coming here for a year, and listen, you love this church, and it's, it's going on, but you hadn't gotten involved yet because you would rather be like the Pharisees. You would rather watch than work. And God has called his people not to just sit on the sidelines and watch the work of God, but to be actively involved in the work of God. I'm just going to lay it out here flat for some of you. Some of y'all going to be like, I can't come back because he's telling me I got a serving kids right now. I'm not telling you you got a serving kids. Some of you don't want to get involved because you're scared of having to work in kids. First of all, I can't imagine being scared of a fifth grader. I just can't. I mean, if that's you, I'm sorry here today. You got some issues. We need to work through them, right? Unless it's Beckett. <laughs> Second thing is, you're revealing in you a hard heart. Because you want to come and you want to be fed and you want to be involved, but you don't want to work, you just want to watch. Is that you this morning? The synagogue was also a place of worship, though. Everyone else had come to praise God. And while the people of God worshiped, right? Praise God, people were worshiping. The Pharisees were watching. And some of us are the, have the same kind of mindset. Religious people watch while God's people worship, right? And some of us have the same kind of mindset. We come here week after week after week, and we're not really worshiping God in these church services. What we're doing is we're consuming some entertainment. 
And listen, if you come here for entertainment every week, I hate to break it to you, but cable news, cable television is better than coming to watch this for entertainment, right? But you come here and you sit through worship as if it's something to watch instead of something to participate in. We come here every week to worship God and preach the gospel of Jesus. I don't know what you think we come here for. I don't know what you think our mission is. I don't, think you, I don't know why you think we think it's fun to put out uh, these chairs every week or set up and tear down these rooms, but we do it for one reason. We come here every week to worship God and preach the gospel of Jesus. This is not for entertainment. This has purpose. So let me ask you this. Why do you come every week? Do you come every week because this is the coolest church service? Do you come every week because this is the place to be? Or do you come here every week because when you wake up on Sunday morning, you know, I got to worship God today. He's been too good to me. I got to worship him today. Why do you come? So the first thing is they're lazy. Second thing about a a religious hard-hearted person, and this is where it's going to get real good to you, is that they're legalistic. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, they watch to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath. All right, so let me explain to you what's going on here. They're watching real close to see if Jesus would heal the people on, on the Sabbath day. Everybody knows what the Sabbath day is supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be a day of rest. You ain't supposed to work. And so these, these Pharisees, I don't know how y'all, how y'all think, but they had an, a whacked up idea of faith. You all know how they thought about God? They thought about God like this. If I am good enough, then he will love me, Okay. If I can just obey the rules enough, then he will love me. And so they, they tried to obey the rules. And if you ever read your Old Testament, right, you would know that the, one of the Old Testament rules, one of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall not work on wind. Sabbath, right? And so there's what they thought. We better obey those rules just like they're written down. Matter of fact, they're not specific enough. We need to make these rules more specific. That way we can obey the rules and be a real good person because if I'm good enough, then Jesus will love me. So let me tell you this. They came up, they thought it would be good to sit down and write a list of rules out. And when they got done, they had 613 of them. And these rules would include things like this. On Sunday... You cannot go further than 3,000 feet from your home because if you went 3,001 feet, you were working. My golly. How about on, on Sunday, if you want to eat good, uh, a good Sabbath meal, you better cook it the night before because on the Sabbath, you can't light a fire because once you strike that spark, baby, you have worked. Right? And in their minds, what they thought is we can't break, we can't work, we can't break the law because we got to make God happy. And if we make God happy, if we're good little boys and we're good little girls, when we die, we'll get to go to heaven because we've been good enough. And in trying to obey God, in trying to please God, they miss the heart of God. Because if you, I don't know how much you've read the Gospels, but Jesus actually comes to them and calls them a brood of vipers, liars, and hypocrites, and children of hell. I'm just here to tell you, if Jesus calls you a child of hell, you're done, right? You have missed it. Here's what legalism says. If you don't know what legalism is, it's it's trying to be so good. It's trying to earn God's favor by obeying the rules. Legalism says this, if I'm good enough, when I die, I will be accepted. And let me tell you what the heart of God is. Only I am good. Only I am good. And keeping the law, they, were, they thought they were going to be good enough to be accepted by God when the whole point of the law was that there is no one good enough. 
So we struggle with the Old Testament a lot, don't we? It's hard to read. Can't really keep up with it. I know it's hard. Let me tell you the main point of the Old Testament. The main reason God gave us the Old Testament was to show you that you could not do it on your own. Because you know what? He gave people about 5,000 years to try to figure it out. And you know what? We weren't no closer at the end of the 5,000 years than when we was when we started. The whole point is that you can't be good enough. Let me tell you something. This is what religion does. If you're a religious person here this morning, you've been coming to church your whole life. You've been, uh, you've been coming to church this past year. The religion ma- makes us become so consumed with the insanity of trying to be good enough before God that we completely miss the point of God which is this, outside the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, no one is good enough and everyone will be in hell. Religion says, try harder, try harder, you can do it, keep going. God says, outside of Jesus, you don't have a shot. Religion makes us become consumed with it. Let me be honest with you. This represents most of the people in this room. If we can just lay everybody's heart flat this morning, the way you think is, if I can be good enough, when I die, God will let me in. I know I need to believe Jesus, but that's just part of me being a good enough person, right? You cannot fathom in your head that you were never good enough to save yourself, that you can do nothing to save yourself, and that the only hope of heaven any of us have in this room is that Christ died on the cross in our place. Let me tell you something. I'm begging you this morning. If you live your life, if the way you think, and you might not even realize you think like this in your heart, but if the way you think is, I need to be a good person, I need to try harder, I need to read my Bible, I need to pray because I want to love God, I don't want to go to hell when I die. Listen, if that's the way you think, if that's the way your heart is, I'm begging you, you're killing yourself, stop doing it. Because here's the reality of it. I can wake up for the next 80 years. If God lets me live to be 102, I could wake up for the next 80 years and read my Bible and say my prayers and love my wife and be a good father and I could still die and go to hell. Because there is nothing that I can do in and of myself to save myself. And the reality is, this is most of y'all. And I say that saying the most of y'all because I know this is how I lived. That in, I thought the way that I could be saved, and I'm just going to be real honest, real transparent here with you. The way that I would be saved is if I did not, if I didn't drink, if I didn't uh, have premarital sex, and if I didn't cuss, when I died, God would say, you've been pretty good, come on in. When all the while, I was just like a Pharisee, trying to be good on the outside, but on the inside, I was rotting away. Because let me tell you something, I may not have done those things, but let me tell you what I wanted in my heart. All of those things. And Jesus is more worried about the heart. And here's the beauty of this. When we realize this morning, that when you realize that there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself, this, brings, this gives us freedom to actually do what God says he says he wants us to do. And the reality is, let me tell you this, if you knew you were about to die, if you knew that you were about to be carried out sentence on, you you were about to be in the electric chair, you were about to receive the punishment that you were due, and at the last moment, somebody came in and said, I'll take his spot. Would it be very hard for you to look at that person and say, I'll do whatever you want me to do? No. You would, from a grateful heart, say, is there anything I could do for you? You've taken my spot. How can I please you? And that's what happens when we're saved. I, I, I hate legalism because I know it makes you so ineffective as a Christian because here's the reality. 
a religious heart that does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that is more worried about obeying the rules than seeing lost people get saved. What happens is you get so consumed in your own little personal walk that you think, I got to be better, I got to do better. All the while, you're so worried about yourself that people are dying and going to hell and you're not even concerned about them because you got to worry about yourself. Practically, this is kind of, kind of thing, a couple of things coming to my heart when I was thinking about this. This looks like when we're more concerned about arguing whether it's right or wrong to drink a beer than it is to go and seek opportunities to witness to lost people. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I've had people over and over come up to me, and Jeremy too, especially people find out you're a preacher and they're just like, how much can I get away with, right? They come up to me and say, Dallas, is drinking wrong? Is drinking, what do you think about drinking? You know what I think about drinking? That there are lost and dead, dying people going to hell. Go witness to somebody. Because when you get so caught up and worried about what's right and what's wrong, you miss the entire point of the gospel which is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there ain't some stuff you should figure out. But what I am saying is we need to focus on the main things. When we become more consumed with following the rules and making sure everybody else is following the rules than we do about seeing God transform hearts and lives of lost sinners to turn them away from sin and toward holiness, we have missed the point. Y'all okay? Y'all still with me? Y'all cold. Cold, cold, cold. Last thing I want you to see about him is that they're self-righteous, not sympathetic. A religious person, a person who has a hard heart is self-righteous, not sympathetic. In verse 2, it says this. They looked at Jesus. They watched Jesus. Why? So that they might accuse him. A religious heart is a self-righteous heart that looks to condemn others rather than love others. Get this. They didn't want to understand Jesus. They wanted to accuse Jesus. They were self-righteous, not sympathetic. They were so worried about what's right and wrong that they didn't even care about trying to understand another person. Religious hearts are not hearts that are rich in grace and mercy, but they're quick to condemn and accuse. And I'm just going to be honest with you right here. I believe with all of my heart that if Christians, if real God-honoring, believing Christians could find a way to stand on God's word without compromise and yet love every kind of person who came through the doors, our churches would be a lot more full and a lot more effective. But what happens is we, we move to one other. We say, we got to stand on God's word without compromise. And then when somebody comes in who's doing something we don't like, we say, you, you got to go because you're not doing the right thing. Or we just let everybody in and we just say, you know what, forget about God's word. I want to tell you, there's a tension in the gospel. There's a tension that don't let up. It's not either or, it's both and. I heard a story of a man. He went to a church. I ain't want to say the name of the man or the name of the church because you know both. But it was here in this community. And he walked into church, and somebody looked at him and said, well, man, if you are here today, the walls are going to fall in. That's what they told him. Can't believe in you in church. The walls are going to fall in. I need to sit in the back so I can get out of here. Here's the thing. I don't know who made that comment. I know who it was made to, but I can tell you this. It was from a self-righteous person, not a sympathetic person. Because here's the thing. Once we understand how sinful we are, we would never make that kind of statement. 
The default posture of a religious heart is accusation and condemnation rather than grace, understanding, and a hope for people to repent and change. If somebody walks to the door and they're different than you and you look at them and say, they're a sinner instead of God, I hope you change their hearts today. You have missed the grace of Jesus. Self-righteousness always looks to point out everybody else's faults, but never your own. So what are you more likely to do? Let me ask you that, church. What are you more likely to do? Condemn and accuse or seek to give grace and yearn for people to repent? If I can be practical for you just a second, one way this plays out in our everyday lives is that self-righteous people, when they talk about people, it really quickly tends to be gossip and slander. Because why? You're just condemning people and accusing people. Let me ask you Think to yourself, how do you talk about other people? Do you talk about them with grace and mercy and understanding, or are you just slander them and condemn them? One more thing about the Pharisees is this. They draw the wrath, they draw the anger of Christ. Look at verse 5. This is, the, this is the most beautiful thing in the Bible to me. I love this right here. It says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I want you to catch something. Did you catch how Jesus felt when he was dealing with these people? How did he feel? How did Jesus feel? When he dealt with these people. Okay, I'm just making sure. He felt angry. I want to make sure your Bible said the same thing my Bible did. All right? He was angry. Why would Jesus have been angry with these people? They're good church-going folks. Let me tell you, that, that puts us at risk, right? There's a chance that Jesus could be angry with us this morning. We're like Pharisees. We go to church. We're good people. He was mad at them because they didn't realize their own need. They were mad at Christ for healing a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath when if they understood who Jesus was and how sinful they were, they would have gone to Jesus and asked him to heal them on the Sabbath. But no, they're looking at everybody else instead of looking at herself. And when we look at herself, we say, Jesus, I need you more than that man. Come to me first. Come to me first. But yet they were seeking to condemn him. This is, this is amazing. Jesus never once gets mad at the filthy prostitute who sold herself and is guilty before God. You know why? Because the prostitute realizes her need. But God is burning with anger at church folk because they don't have any idea how sinful they really are. The scary thing is many of us have the heart of the Pharisees. We think, surely I'm good enough. Surely if I just keep being a good person, if I keep pressing forward, if I keep trying hard, then when I die, God's going to let me into heaven because I've been a good person when the Bible says every good deed you've ever done is as filthy rags before the Lord. The Bible says that you are not just kind of bad. The Bible says that in your sin and trespasses, you are dead and separated from Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if it's up to you to save yourself, you will spend eternity in hell. As I told you earlier, this has been humbling for me because as I've looked at the heart of the Pharisee, I've realized that there's more heart of Pharisee in me than there is heart of Jesus. Because if I can be honest with you, I'm lazy. I would much rather somebody else do the work of God than me get to watch and take part in it. I would much rather try to obey the rules because you know why? If I can obey the rules, I can do it my way. I would much rather tell God, I got this, God. I can handle it. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. If it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ in my heart, I would die and go to hell. So that's a hard and religious heart. second kind of heart I want you to see is this, a humble heart. The second kind of heart in the story is a humble heart, and it comes from the man with the withered hand. 
Now, let me tell you something. If, I, if we're honest this morning, most of us are going to identify with the Pharisee more, but this man is the man we should be trying to aspire to be. This is the kind of woman we should try to aspire to be. And I want you to see a couple things. The first thing is this. We've got to move a little bit quicker. He had a heart full of worship. Look at verse 1. Where, is it, where does Jesus say he found this man? He says he found him in the synagogue. I told y'all that the synagogue was a place of worship, right? It's where you came to worship God, to say, God, I want to, I want to pour out praise to you today. But here's the thing. Not only do we know he was a worshiper by the way, by the fact that he was in the synagogue, we can also know that he was a worshiper by what you had to do in the synagogue at those times. And in those times when you got to the synagogue to pray, you got down on your knees. And when you got down on your knees, when you prayed, you lifted your hands just like this. Now, I want you to think about this. When he did this, his deformity was exposed before God and everybody. He could, there was nothing he could hide. He was saying, it's all out there, God. But get this, he was more worried about worshiping God than he was about his appearance. He was more worried about worshiping God than about what anybody else would say. And now compare his idea of worship to our idea of worship. If the truth be known, most of you don't know how to worship in this church service. If I said first hand up gets a million dollars, everybody would lose, right? We don't want to raise our hands, much less raise our deformed hands. Most of us don't have consistent times of worship in our daily lives. Let me ask you something. Let me tell you something. If you don't have a consistent devotional life with God, a time where you say, God, I want to get before you, and I want to know you more, and I want to read your scripture, and I want to pray to you, if you don't have that built into your life, I can promise you, you don't have a heart full of worship. Because we have to be coming before God. And most all of us are completely ashamed to worship God in public. Then you got to see this man had a heart full of faith also. In uh, Luke 6, 6, it says this. It says that the man had a deformed hand, but his right hand was deformed. Now, here's, the, here's why it's important the Bible tells us it was his right hand. Because his right hand was his best hand. And those days, the right of everything, right eye, right hand, right arm, it always symbolized the very best and so what Jesus is telling us here is that this man was coming before us and in the way he approached God, he was so humble, he was, realized his need so much that he took the best he had and he offered it before God and what was it? It was messed up. It wasn't good enough. But he had a heart full of faith. Then don't miss the implication. The man knew in his heart full of faith that the very best he had to offer Christ was not good enough, but he believed God would accept what he had. Now, why is that important? This is extremely important for a lot of us here today because the, what this is teaching us is that it reveals to us that we don't get cleaned up to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus just like we are with all our brokenness, with all our trash, and then Jesus will clean us up. This man had the faith that, God, if I bring you my worst, you will take it and make it your best. Some of you have been coming, and I, I really, God weighed this on my heart this morning. Some of you have been coming to church your whole life, and you have never been committed because your thought process is, I've got to get my stuff in order before I come here and claim to be a good Christian and to be a part of this church, right? I got to get my stuff together first. I got to be better. I got to be more clean. When this story is teaching us, that no one is ever good enough to come to Jesus on their own terms. 
All we can do is all we can do is we can take our junk, we can take our trash, we take all of our sin, we take everything that's not good enough and we come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have anything to offer you. And he says, it don't matter. I'll take your worst and I'll make it my best. On the cross, on the cross, Jesus looked at your dirtiness and his blood went like bleach over your sin and made it white as snow. What did, that, what did the song we just sang, sing say? For my pardon, this, the, the original hymn says this, for my pardon, this I plead, what? Nothing but the blood. I have nothing that can save me outside the blood of Christ. Listen, if you've been coming here and you had not got involved because you think I'm not there yet, you're never going to be there. The only way you're ever going to make it is if you trust God to take your worst and make it his best. Last thing I want you to see about this man is he was obedient. Verses three and five, Jesus tells the man to come here and then he tells the man to stretch out his hand. And you know what the man does both times? Exactly what Jesus told him to do. The person with the humble heart is the person who obeys God's word even when it's not what they want to do. Let me, I want to make something clear to you. Judas didn't obey God's word. He was associated with Christ. He knew what Christ had come to do. But when it come time to obey or disobey, he said, no, I'm going to disobey. People who are Christians do what God says when God says. Where there is no obedience to Jesus Christ, there is no salvation from Jesus Christ. Uh, this man could have ignored Jesus. He could have said, I'm not coming up there in front of everybody. You know what would have happened? He'd have never been healed. Let me make it practical for you. What has God told you to do that you are not doing? What sin is in your life that you know displeases God that you are not willing to deal with? Who has God told you to share the gospel with that you've kept your mouth closed around? Who has God told you to invite to church that you've just told them, have a good day, man. See you later. A humble heart is an obedient heart. We need to be humble. Last kind of heart I want you to see this morning is a Savior's heart. Now, to understand Jesus' heart in this, I'm closing with this. To understand Jesus' heart, you got to understand where you fit in in the Bible. So a lot of times when we read stories in the Bible like this, what we automatically do is we insert ourselves into Jesus' shoes because we think a lot of ourselves, and what we think is, if I had lived back then, I would have done what Jesus did. I would have never crucified Jesus. I would have been trying to save Jesus off the cross, right? That's how we think, right? We don't think we'd have ever done anything bad. But here's what you got to understand. In this story... You are the man with the withered hand. You may not need physical healing, but this morning I can promise you, you need spiritual hand. Like the man, the be- like this man, the best you have to offer before God is as if it's nothing. So put yourself in his shoes this morning. I want you to put yourself in a place where you realize your need. As we close out, I want you to just, if you can, really put your heart in a place where you realize that before God, I have nothing to offer. I can never please him on my own. I would never be good enough. Put yourself in this man's shoes. And I want you to see a couple things about God. I want you to see a couple things about Jesus in this story. First thing I want you to see about Jesus in this story is that he's compassionate. He's compassionate. What did Jesus do when he came into the synagogue? He immediately sought out somebody to give grace to. 
He immediately sought out somebody with need. He immediately was looking for somebody to give the grace of Jesus. Now, I want you to see if that's how you, if you are the man with the withered hand, if you realize you have great spiritual need before God, then this is God's heart toward you. Christ sees you in your desperate need. Christ sees you in all of your sin. And with a full heart of compassion, Jesus went to the cross to say, I will heal those who cannot heal themselves. Jesus' heart is good. It's compassionate. 1 Peter 2.24 says, By his wounds you have been healed. You may be the worst sinner in here today. But if you realize that you have a need, then you'll find a Savior who's looking to save you. I also want you to see this. Jesus' heart is restorative restorative. He wants to bring restoration. Verse 5, it says this, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Fully, completely restored. Scripture says the man was completely restored. Don't miss the point. Jesus is not in the business of just getting you to a point where you can get by. Jesus is interested in full restoration in your heart and life. You might have a marriage that is jacked up. You might have a life that you think is beyond repair. You might think there is no hope anywhere in this world for you. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is not interested in just getting you by. Jesus is interested in bringing you restoration and healing. On the cross, i got to just be honest with you here. On the cross, Jesus did just not just die so that you could be forgiven and not go to hell. That was not his goal. On the cross, Jesus died so that he could restore you completely to God. That means that you're not only a forgiven sinner. You're a forgiven sinner who has the power to defeat sin and defeat shame and defeat the attacks of the enemy on your life. Jesus is not interested in getting you to a point where you can just make it through life. Jesus is interested in you bringing you full restoration. You do not have to keep doing the same sins you've always done. You do not have to keep fighting the same struggles you've always fought. You do not have to keep losing the same temptations you've always lost. Jesus died to restore you. The blood of the cross was the payment to buy you back from the pits of hell and to give you life and give it abundantly if you're just willing to realize I have a need that I can't solve on my own. I was running the other day. I was running yesterday morning. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting things like when I, I'm younger than most of you guys, so I wasn't expecting things like budgets and payments and debts and all those things to be so hard when I got older. I don't know why. And I was, I was running yesterday, and I was really stressed out about just trying to figure some stuff out. And I was just like, God, I just can't do it on my own. God, I can't, I can't lead my family on my own. God, I can't do it on my own. God, I don't know how to, I'm not smart enough to get it all together. And you know what he told me? I really felt him speak into my heart, Dallas, you're the Pharisee, because I never asked you to do it on your own. I asked you to trust me. Listen, that brings me to the most important two words in this whole story. Yeah, I want you to look at verse five with me, verse three with me, I'm sorry. And I want you to see the most two important words, the two most important words in this whole story. It says this. Can you put three, uh, verse three on there? And he said to the man with the withered hand, will you read those words with me? He said to the man with the withered hand, 
come here. Y'all read that with me. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. It all started, the healing all started with a simple invitation. And what I want you to realize this morning is that the same invitation that Jesus Christ offered to this man is the same invitation that he's offering to you. He's not telling you, he didn't look at the withered man and tell him, clean up. He didn't look at the withered man and say, heal yourself. He didn't look at the withered man and say, you need to get your stuff together. He looked at the man with the withered hand and said, come here. And listen, this morning, what I want you to realize is that you might not have a physical deformity, but apart from Jesus Christ in your spirit, you're broken and you're deformed and you're nastier than anything this guy could have ever been. And apart from Jesus Christ, there's a place called hell and a place called heaven. And apart from him, you will die and go to hell forever, forever, but you don't have to because Jesus is looking to you this morning and he is just saying, come here. That's what he's asking you. That's what his plea for you is, come here. And I, I can't make you come here. I can't tell you to, what you, that you need to come here. You have to hear it in your heart. And Jesus is looking to somebody this morning and saying, come here. Were you thinking, what about this when I get there? What about that when I get there? Jesus figured all of the rest of it out. All he asks of you is that you come here. And now what come here means is that you lay down your life and surrender to Jesus Christ and you give it all to him. No games, no ifs, no ands, no buts. Jesus, I trust you. And that, y'all, y'all know it's a fight forever because what did I tell you I had to do yesterday morning? He had to get me back in line. But Jesus is looking to some of you this morning and saying, come here. And I want to just close this way. Is there anybody in this room who you know, I've been describing you. You've been coming to your church your whole life, but you hadn't been willing to do it the right way. You hadn't been willing to say, Jesus, it's all yours. And this morning, Jesus is saying to you, come here. Is there anybody this morning who wants to answer Jesus' call to come here? Is that anybody this morning? You just want to be saved today and you want to say, I'm coming here. If you would just raise your hand, we want to celebrate with you. We're not going to look at you like you're funny. We're not going to look at you like you're crazy. We're going to praise God for what he's doing in your heart. Is there anybody this morning that says, I'm answering Jesus' call to come here? That's fine. But then let, me, let me just, let me give it to you this way. We're about to have a time of invitation. Gresham's going to play the keys. This altar's going to be open. If Jesus isn't telling you to come here, that means you're already there. And if we need to look at our hearts, and if our hearts are not right before God, then this altar's the place we need to lay them out. Thank y'all for letting me preach. I know I went a little long. I'm sorry, but God's just been burdening my heart this week. If we can just close in a time of prayer, this altar will be open. If you don't want to come pray at this altar, if you would if you would rather, you'll be dismissed. You just exit out the back. But I want to leave this altar open right now for people who are, are interested in prayer. So if you're not interested in coming and praying, you may be dismissed. And we'll see you back here next week. I love you. I pray that God did a work in your heart today. And I pray that you'll live it out outside these walls. This altar will be open. Dear God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you, dear God, that I, I'm the worst sinner in here, dear God. I know I am, and God, you saved me. Lord, today, would you do a work in people's hearts to change it? God, you are a good God, you are a mighty God, and you are a God who is interested in full restoration. Would you bring that to people today, dear God? Would you bring full restoration to people's hearts? Would you bring full restorations to people's lives? Would you bring full restorations to people's walk with you, to people's marriages, to people's jobs? Would you do that today? 
And God, I'll worship you because you are the God who saves Pharisees and you are the God who saves prostitutes. And I thank you for that. In Christ's name I pray, amen.